Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. This week's podcast, we're doing 10 questions with someone in recovery, and that person is Ryan Hampton, author of The American Fix and somebody that I was friends with on Facebook for several years and finally got to meet in Vegas at the Mobilize Recovery non-conference that we had. Uh, Brian, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit and maybe talk a little bit about Mobilize Recovery? Sure. It's great to be here. Um, thanks for having me on. And, and yes, my name is Ryan Hampton. Uh, I am an author and activist, advocate, uh, son, brother, uh, partner, uh, community member, voter, taxpayer, dog lover, uh, Facebook fellow, but most importantly, uh, a person in recovery from a substance use disorder. Uh, which means I haven't felt it necessary to have a drink or a drug or any other mind-altering substance since February 2nd, uh, 2015. Um, you know, I, I certainly didn't envision myself uh, identifying as a person in recovery. I didn't even know what that meant, you know, right. when I first got sober. Um, I just kind of wanted to, to, to forget that I ever had a, a problem uh, with drugs and alcohol and just move on with my life and on to the next thing. Uh, but that certainly wasn't my journey, you know, through recovery and through my community, uh, I found passion, I found purpose, I found a reason to get up in the morning, um, of develop relationships that I never thought were possible. You know, I, I was thinking about it in the car ride over here, just how did I get to this point where I'm at today? You know, sometimes it's really hard to think about it when you're just in the moment and you're thinking, my gosh, how did I arrive to this point? Um, but then when I look back over the last you know, four and a half years and can think of small steps, small incremental parts of that journey over four and a half years and, and small decisions and things that really didn't seem significant at the time. And a lot of times were frustrating all add up in the end. And, and, you know, given hopefully a lot of recovery people are going to listen to this. And I, I don't say this, you know, in my usual talks and out to the public because they won't understand what I'm talking about. But everybody's like, well, can you go back to the to the moment that things started to change for you? Um, and I actually can. Uh, I was about five months sober. My life, I felt, was over. I was living right. in a sober living home. Um, I, I, I didn't have much hope. Uh, I also wasn't living very differently. I was going to meetings and had a sponsor and all that. And, and, uh, a friend of mine said, well, you know, you're a disaster in the morning when you wake up, Ryan, like you wake up at 10 AM, you don't do anything, you know, you smoke cigarettes, your bed's not made. He's like, let's do this. He's like, let's start with something really simple. Make your bed, just make your bed in the morning. That's all you need to do. Start making your bed. I, I don't know if anybody else has experienced this, but that's when things started to change for me. And I know it sounds silly. Making your bed. Making my bed, honestly, because I, I would make my bed in the morning and then it would take me to the next task. 
you know, I, I started, I guess the point of that is I started listening to someone else, okay. right? I started taking advice from someone else, uh, taking direction from somebody else. And it allowed me to be more open. Um, there's actually a, a, a great book out there that it, it says, you know, uh, it's actually called make your bed. Um, okay. and it, and it goes back to this whole theory of how it, it can be life-changing for someone who's super disorganized and unmotivated. Uh, but that came, that advice came from, from someone in the rooms and, and, uh, I followed it and that's, that's when things started to change for me. And I know that's a little off topic, but, um, it's something folks don't really hear from me most a lot. So I thought I'd share it. Well, I think um, it's, I think it's good because it's the difference between using a term that I can't stand clean. Yeah. Um, I've never big, been a big fan of clean. I always say I'm clean for 30 seconds after I get out of the shower, the rest of my day I'm in recovery. Right. But clean is abstinent. Yeah. And what you're talking about is going from abstinence, just being abstinence to actually starting on that road of recovery. Right. There's a difference too. So there's, there's like people will be, you know, sobriety, sober, um, clean, you know, abstinent, um, all, all of those terms. I really don't, I, 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 some people will use the word recovery with those terms, you know, uh, or recovering addict or whatever they'll say, you know, but I don't associate recovery with just stopping using drugs and alcohol. Right. I mean, I, I don't, I, I think recovery is actually, um, a quality of life issue for me or quality of life, um, uh, position like my recovery journey started, uh, you know, when I walked out of treatment, but my recovery really happened. Um, when I started finding that purpose, when I started living differently, when I stopped telling lies, when I started, uh, you know, taking care of things that I needed to take care of in my life, like building relationships, like, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it sounds silly, but yeah, making my bed was, a was a big starting point. Um, you know, my journey into advocacy, um, started in 2016. I, I started losing a lot of friends. Um, and just started getting more involved, right? I didn't know there was this recovery movement that existed. I didn't know that it was out there. Um, I actually learned about it by by watching a, a Facebook uh, video. And when you say losing friends, you mean friends, friends. dying? Yeah, yeah, friends right, dying. Not like alienating friends, but no, literally, yeah, literally dying. Friends. Roommates of mine dying. Okay. Um, you know, some of them who were in the process of seeking help. You know, one you know was denied. Uh, care in an ER room and walked out and died that night. Um, and I started getting involved. And, and while that story in itself, the evolution of, of, of kind of my journey in advocacy is probably a 10 part series podcast in its own, I will, um, you know, dumb it down uh, to this. I started talking about my recovery uh, in my community. Um, it was a, um, I guess the, the, it was, it was a topic that, that nobody really wanted to discuss. And I, it was a very hard decision for me, uh, and very personal decision to go public with it. And, uh, going public for me was when I say my community, it was literally in Pasadena, California, you know, at a, at a caucus hearing we had, which is like this political event, um, talking about what was going on in our community and talking about my personal recovery. Um, and I had the, it started as small as the other guys in my sober living room, uh, as a result of me talking to the community and telling my story, they wanted to tell theirs too. They wanted to get more right. involved and that just started to build and build and build. Uh, and of course with the, with the, you know, uh, with the, with social media these days, you know, messages can go very far and wide, very quickly. 
Um, so we started relying a lot on, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatnot, uh, to share our message. And that, that's kind of how it, it took off, you know, that being said, back to your question about mobilized recovery, um, you know, for the first four years of, of this journey, not just my recovery journey, but also my advocacy journey, you know, I, I, I'm very grateful and I feel very blessed that I've had tools, right? I've been able to make connections with other people around the country. Um, I've had the opportunity to travel to almost every state in this country on doing some sort of advocacy effort over the last four years. Um, you know, meeting with legislators, writing legislation, uh, meeting with the big tech companies, trying to figure out how to get big corporate brands involved. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm a writer, right? I, I've been able to write op-eds and get in front of the media and all of this stuff. But I, by myself, you know, I mean, uh, movements aren't one pe- one person. Right. Um, I also know that I can't do this by myself, nor do I want to do this by myself, because this is this is like a we thing. And one of the things that I've identified like within our current day recovery advocacy movement is there are some selected leaders that we have out there, but nobody's really going out and building more leaders. Nobody's right. going out and empowering people to lead, whether it's in their own community, in their own state, nationally, if they want. Nobody's going out and freely, just as we're supposed to in recovery, freely give what was given to us, give it right. away, right? Absolutely. No, we see people who are holding on to power Right. And when people hold on to power, things don't change very much. So I, I, you know, the mobilized recovery initiative was born out of a fellowship that I got with Facebook and Facebook said, well, what do you want to do on this issue? And I said, I want to go out and I want to give people as many tools and as much network and connection um, and resources that they need to do what I'm doing and more. Right. Right. Like I want you and others who are there and the people who we will keep connecting with through the mobilized network over the course of the next several years, I want them to go out and do the next big thing, right? Um, and to have all the same opportunity that I have had. So that was that was the, 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 the concept in a nutshell. Um, and I would say just looking at some of the impact indicators coming out of it, it's incredibly successful. Like, like I think on Facebook about yeah. different things people are doing. I yeah. guess Somebody just uh, did a Our Stories Matter thing I read yeah. about tonight yep. where they had a lot of uh, legislators come to them and listen to people share their stories of recovery. Mm-hmm. And, and I think know. that like a lot of the, the bigger groups have been like caught up on ownership and like knowing, you know, the, the metrics and whatnot. Well, I'm big on metrics, too, and I want to see what our impact indirect and direct is over the next couple of years. Um, sometimes the biggest impacts, um, the most you know, uh, impactful outcomes, uh, aren't measurable, right. You know, because hopefully it's a ripple effect. And I think even just coming out of mobilize only a month later, I mean, we've had like five or six brand new organizations sprout up that are state specific, that are community based. We've already seen, you know, uh, uh, town halls start to take place, you know, community based meetings and assessment meetings like you've had, um, everybody's starting on this journey at a different place. Right. I'm a big fan of starting from the beginning because a lot of people just, they, they are starting from the beginning, right. but some people like yourself are often going. Um, Mobilize at its heart though, is gonna be able to provide infrastructure support, training, you know, and, and the tools that you need and the communities need to do their job. We don't wanna dictate the agenda. We wanna help you identify right. what the agenda is in your community and then support you. And I think that's huge. I know, I have some things going, but at the same time, uh, I don't have a lot of the knowledge I need. 
you know, and I think there's a lot but of, people you know, like somebody that. who does, you that's know. the thing. Like, now I do. Yeah. But that's what I learned though, is I was like, I don't have all the answers. I have very few of the answers actually, but if we have a strong committed network right. of advocates from around the country and policymakers and philanthropists and corporate leaders, if you don't know the answer, or I don't know the answer. We will know somebody who does, or somebody we know will know somebody right. who does and we'll be able to get to a solution. So, I mean, that's that, like, we haven't been reaching far enough. You know, we've been kind of talking in this echo chamber, you know, right. and that was one of the frustrating things for me is, and we were just talking about that before going on the air here, is is is, is the movement in a sense um, has been talking to a few hundred thousand at best, at best, maybe right. tens of thousands of people um, over the last several years, at least since I've gotten sober. It hasn't grown any. Right. Mm-hmm. Growth has been stifled. What about we throw this number, 23 million people in long term recovery in the United States? Who's talking to the 22 million, 900,000 of them? Right. right. It ain't us. It's usually industry, pharma, you know, other 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 interests that don't have our interests at heart. So that's who we need to be talking to. We need to start getting outside of this box of of this echo chamber and talking to ourselves um, which I, I, I don't want to knock on it because it got us to the point we're at today. Right. We need to start looking outward, though, and talking to the rest of America. Right. And I think I think one of the problems I've had <clears throat> a lot is so many people are proprietary. You know, I, I love that, uh, like Carol McDade mm-hmm. is over the region that I'm in, Region 7. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the kind of the coach that mentor. we have right yeah. now, the mentor. Yeah. And, uh I really like the McShin Foundation. I don't like yeah. to plug people yeah. indiscriminately. I love the McShin. I'll plug McShin. If you haven't checked out McShin, <laughs> go check out the McShin Foundation. I love the McShin Foundation. But I will tell you this. There's been a couple of other national organizations around the nation that I've reached out to for help. And they've been like, sorry, but it's going to cost X amount of dollars. Right. I have reached out to the McShin Fa- Foundation probably four times. Yeah. For, you know, I'm like, hey, we just opened up a recovery community center Mm -hmm. and I need to write a a policy and procedure manual. Do you have any tips? And they're like, we'll just send you ours. You know, they have been so great to work with. And I think that's how the recovery community should be. And yet it feels like everybody's siloed and proprietary. And well, people need I mean, I understand they need some of these organizations. Those are revenue models for them. So it's like I get it. But at the same time, I do understand what you're saying about being proprietary and and the ownership and the branding and all that. And that is one of like, it seems like there's five or six organizations out there who are fighting to be the top dog organization. And I got news for all of them. None of them are going to be a top dog organization if they keep acting like this, because that's not how you build movements and coalitions by trying to own a space, right? right? There needs to, this needs to be a people centered, people driven movement with many leaders and many organizations that can collaborate, right? Collaboration is key. As you saw mobilize, one of the things that was different was we brought in prevention, families of loss, drug users unions, right. recovery people. We brought these communities and these leaders from these different groups together that historically wouldn't be don't in the same along. room together and don't get along. But the, but the hypothesis around this was, I get it. Like we all have a different means, you know, to, to the end of this hopefully, right. to the end of this crisis, to, to providing people, to keeping people alive and getting, allowing them to live their, their, their best lives. 
we all want our communities to heal. We all want our friends and families to stay alive, right? We all agree on that. So let's start there and work backwards. Are we going to agree on everything? Absolutely not. Do we need to agree on everything? Absolutely not. But are there one, two, three, or four principles, guiding principles that we can all at least be led with and lead with? And is there a few things that we can work on together? And are we willing to at least learn from each other and get to know each other, right? Like if we can start there, we're making huge progress. And what I saw is in that room at Mobilize was people weren't talking and coordinating and weren't getting along and were fighting because they never really had the opportunity to get together and get to know one each other, right? Like once you get to know somebody and, you know, nobody there or, or, or in this space is ill will, like nobody's looking to destroy somebody else. Um, we do want to work together. We just have to you know, we, we, we've got to get to know each other. Right. Um, and that's how other, I mean, you look at other movements like LGBT, um, the gay movement in the early days of the gay movement, they did not get along. I mean, there were people who agreed with medication on HIV, disagreed with medication on HIV. When marriage came up, there were gay people that supported it, that were against it, you know, but at the end of the day, they all believed in the equal rights. Right. Right. And so, um, there's a lot of parallels with other movements. Um, but I think, you know, we're, we're, we have a very, very, uh, tall task ahead of us. We've got a very long road, uh, to get where we want to be. Uh, but I think we're doing something a little bit different, uh, definitely a little disruptive. Uh, we definitely have people's attention. Uh, I mean, I'm very excited to see where it goes. Right. Yeah, I am too. It was, it was very different. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can tell you, I was a therapist for eight and a half years, abstinence only. I always say, I believe there's multiple pathways to recovery. Mine came through Christ, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yep. And if you would have talked to me five years ago and told me that I would be having harm reduction discussions with people, I would have laughed in your face. Right. You know, um, but I kind of went through what you went through. After yep. going to like 70 funerals in three and a half years, I realized that dead people never find recovery and we need to do whatever we can to keep people alive so that they can get well. Yeah. You know, a lot of my advocacy and and that's the thing, like I, Garrett, my best friend, Garrett, who's co-founder of voices project. He's actually in Michigan tonight and tomorrow talking to a bunch of professionals, uh, like the Michigan, I think it is opioid conference. And there's 800 people there all with, you know, big letters after their names for their degrees and whatnot. He's a little nervous and I get nervous at those things too. But I, I talked to him and I said, listen, you know, you just got to realize that, you know, no matter how many initials or whatnot they have after their name, you know, your, your education, your advocacy is really guided by your personal experience, right? right? And your lived experience. And that is one thing that we have uh, that others don't, which is why we need to be forefront with these policy discussions, because I have met doctors, I've met politicians, I have met NIDA scientists and SAMHSA data experts and all these folks who who do a really good job at what what they're being paid right. to do and what their education gives them. But there seems to be this disconnect about what's actually really happening on the ground uh, because we're not involved. And sometimes when we when we lead with our own experience, um, we can make substantial change, right. you know, absolute substantial change. Look, I met, you know, one of the big controversial issues right now is the these safe consumption sites, overdose prevention sites. And and I get it. Um, especially for someone who's not really too attached to the issue. Um, but there's a group I, I know with my own personal experience would, 
Uh, overdose prevention sites have led me to recovery sooner. Absolutely. Why? Because they're not just shooting galleries. Uh, I wouldn't have had, you know, I, I'm not cured of it, but I wouldn't have entered recovery with all these health problems and hep C and a bad liver. Right. Um, there would have been peer recovery supports and clinicians available uh, to, to talk to me when I was ready to get help instead of me getting spun dry into the Florida treatment system and probably would have found some public supports that would have been uh, much more appropriate for me. Um, you went I, to Florida. I guess I didn't. I know. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went you, through Florida. You lived. Yeah, so, I lived. Born and raised in Florida. Um, you know, I, 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 people don't die in overdose prevention sites. There's been over, I think it's 30,000 cases that have been uh, documented uh, in the world in the last seven years, not one reported death. So um, it, 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 that's lived experience though, right? Like that's what I can offer to a policymaker because I go talk to state representative in Massachusetts who's actually very pro our issue, but when she hears about this from the community, she thinks they're just like, you know, places where there's going to be crime and people are going to be using drugs. Right. And, I, and, and you've got to just post her, well, if it was me, um, I was still going to be using drugs. It, it, should we be able to provide, you know, we talk about meeting people where they're at right. all the time, meet someone where they're at while they're using drugs, making sure they're not going to die while using them, making sure they are able to test for fentanyl, making sure that they do have clean syringe access, making right. sure they do have naloxone and making sure that there's a clinician and peer support there to say, are you ready for help? And when you are, I am here and I'm not motivated by money and I'm not motivated by your insurance card and I'm not motivated by, you know, what, how good of a family you come from. Right. I just want to keep you alive. It establishes trust. People will find their way to recovery much quicker, but that's only a lived experience, you know, point of view that can really flip a legislator on the head after talking to that legislator like white life light went off in their head. And they're like, right. Oh my gosh, this makes sense to me now. You know, nobody's explained it to me like that. You know? Right. Um, so our stories are powerful. I remember hearing Chad once say, uh, it, he was talking, he was uh, advocating for uh, syringe access. Yep. We yep. were, uh, uh, given testimony in front of the house and it was so simple, but you know, when he said it's not about the needle, it's about the human connection. That's right. You know, and that was huge. Learned you a know. lot from Chad Sabora. Chad Sabora is one of the, one of the main people, first people I, I really started to absorb a lot of this information from. He's a phenomenal human being. Yeah, he has actually shifted me towards the harm reduction. And when I struggled with consumption sites, he yeah. sent me. I, I don't know. Uh, I turned into kind of a nerd. Yeah, and I, I like data. Yeah. And I like reading studies yep. and he started, he's like, do you like studies? I'm like, yep. He said, well, I'm going to shoot some at you. And after looking at them, mm -hmm. it's hard to argue with. I think the problem we run into is NIMBY. Really, yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, NIMBYism is, is a, is a huge, uh, huge barrier. You know, I think people are struggling with where are we going to put them once we have them? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's also some good studies around that in terms of crime rates and whatnot. They, crime does not increase in, in neighborhoods that right. have safe consumption sites, overdose prevention sites. Um, I, I think it's, you know, um, much like syringe access, you know, syringe access in the in the uh, 90s, early 2000s, up until probably the last five, six years, even maybe depending on what state you are, even even more relatively sooner or or or. Uh, 
the last two or three years, uh, even in California, um, was highly stigmatized, right? Like people thought that safe syringes, needle exchanges would encourage use. Like that right. was the general thought on the street and with policymakers and communities. And they thought there would be dirty needles everywhere and all this stuff. So those were highly, highly stigmatized. But since we've had uh, syringe exchange programs, the CDC has now reported over a 60% drop in HIV infection rates with people who use drugs. Right. So it's like, and now they're, they're being adopted everywhere. So it's like, we just had to get to a point where we learned ourselves, right? And I think the same thing exists for safe consumption sites, overdose response sites, uh, is that we've just got to do it, right. you know? And once one community does it, and we're very close, I think it's going to happen. Harm reduction is one piece of it though, right? So it's like, I and, and I don't want to get too far off on that because it's a really hairy topic, but harm reduction is important. It's important that it gets funding. It's important that we're trying innovate in new innovations like overdose prevention sites, but on the other side of, of, of the spectrum, you know, I, I guess if you looked at this as like a kind of linear, you'd have, and, and I know the folks can't see, I, I, I like to move my hands around, yeah, but you're it, showing me some yeah, great yeah, stuff, yeah, but like all the way on the left, you would have <laughs> harm reduction, overdose prevention sites. And then like all the way on the right, you know, you would have recovery support services and, and, and services to maintain and sustain recovery. And then kind of in between that, you would have your prevention, early intervention, right. you know, Treatments. treatment, whatnot. Um, and it just seems like on that scale, the funding is front loaded big time. And then on the back end of it, which is where recovery support services and sustainable recovery lands, we get close to nothing. So I have um, spent a lot of time on harm reduction because it's important and it would have right. helped me. But I focus the majority of my advocacy around uh, recovery, right? And, and educating people on recovery. Recovery is not treatment, right. you know? Recovery is, 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 is after treatment. Recovery is something that happens after treatment. There, you know, we've been dealing with this as, a, as an acute uh, crisis, right. you know? And that, that's about it. Like you look at all the federal dollars that are coming down, it's like treatment, 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 treatment. Treatment's not gonna keep people in recovery or get people into recovery. It's, it's a good inoculation into it, but treatment, you know, success rates are depressingly low for a reason. Yeah. Look at our you know? block grants and the way money's split up. Prevention gets a little bit, treatment gets almost all, and then yeah. recovery gets next to nothing. And but that's because recovery voices have not been showing up in force or organized, uh, to really demand a, a, uh, coordinated response from our state governments, county governments, and even the federal government on the recovery side. They don't even, you go talk to nine out of 10 legislators in this country and ask them, what is recovery? They couldn't tell you. And that's the problem because to me, treatment's important. I always say treatment's like surgery and recovery right. supports are like physical therapy. Right. You know, so imagine I go have my hip replaced and then I don't go through physical therapy to learn how to walk on it right. Yeah. I'm going to have to go right back into surgery again because I'm going to screw up the surgery. And what sucks is I may screw it up to a point that I might not be able to get another hip replacement. Right. But recovery also, I, I think that even we get lost on this treatment conversation. Well, um, not everybody needs surgery. It, right. And it's not even that not everybody doesn't need surgery. It's that nine out of 10 Americans won't access treatment for right. a, a variety of reasons that again, could be another 10 part podcast, Right. but recovery support services can be a, 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 an entryway 
for people that can't access treatment. Somebody overdoses, they go into the hospital, you know, they should be able to be hooked up with a peer recovery support specialist right away. They should be able to get into a recovery house, you know, Project uh, some of yeah. Those. And, yeah. And, and sometimes they can just bypass that treatment uh, experience, you know, well, and, a lot of people can't afford it or they right. can't wait six to eight weeks for a bed to open well, up. What's or... treatment? I mean, and that's the other question is like, what is treatment in the United States today? What, what is it? Because there is no standard of care. Well, once again, it definitely, it marginalizes, I'm going to go with, uh, lower socioeconomic statuses because right. most people that ca- that don't have private insurance, right. that don't have good commercial insurance, right. get 10 to 14 days of right. treatment. And a lot of times, that's the back end of their detox when they're getting released from treatment because right. they don't even get detox. Yep. So they come out still detoxing and then we're shocked. It's kind of like uh, Don Coyus yep. with the healthy forest, you know, yep. the healing forest. Why should I be surprised when I replant that tree that just started getting well again, right back in the same corrupted soil and the same corrupted, you know, community it came well, out. We of. also, I mean, you you get it. You get mental health. We also need to integrate addiction care, recovery support services into the mainstream healthcare system. Still allowing recovery support services to be peer-led with lived experience, but mental health care and addiction care have got to be integrated. We can't keep treating them as silos because we're not getting to the root causes of trauma. Uh, There is very little trauma-informed care with addiction treatment in this country. You know, we we, we have to be dealing with the the under-the-hood type issues, too, that actually ultimately led people to get addicted. And I've been very, you know, I've gotten knocked for this because a big part of my story is I was prescribed opioids. It set me down a path that led me to heroin that downward spiraled, uh, you know, homeless, addicted on the streets of LA, not being able to get help. Um, that being said, that's what set me off. That's what kind of, you know, was, was, was the ticking time bomb for me and it just exploded and it was a perfect set of circumstances, perfect storm, I guess you could say. But underneath that, there was a ton of trauma that was never addressed in treatment. Right. Ever. I've been able to address it post-treatment because I know it's something I need to take care of, but a ton of trauma, and we're just not dealing with that. Well, if you look at, I just wrote an article for a magazine called The American Christian Voice, and they're doing it. uh, One of their uh, entire uh, magazines for the month on uh, the opioid crisis, and it's called what I wrote. It's called the, the Drug Solution. And the first half of it talks about my life and all the abuse I went through. And then I say, you know, I never had a drug problem. I had a drug solution. My problem was unaddressed trauma. And then I get into uh, the ASA survey. And if you look at ASA survey, you know, somebody who scores a four on an ASA survey is seven is four times more likely to die by suicide and seven times more likely to develop a substance use disorder. Uh, Somebody that scores a six or higher is 46 times more likely to inject illicit drugs. Right. You know, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's and before, huge and, and I want to, I want to, I want to dovetail this really quick because I do want to get into these 10 questions, but actually I, mean, I think we might do a, just roll into another. Yeah. You sure? I think okay. I'm going to end up breaking this into two episodes. Okay. Honestly. Right. And the first one will be kind of the conversation okay. and then we'll do 10 questions. Okay, that's... cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So, um, we have to get beyond this conversation on opioids because it's a, we have a massive long-standing addiction crisis in this country that right. is not five years old. Like that's like my biggest kind of like bingo moment for policymakers. It's like, look, I'm glad we're talking about this right, right now, but the drug crisis, drug epidemic addiction crisis in this country is not 
three, four, five years old. Like we're talking decades right. and it's not just opioids. And if we keep talking about this just in the scope of it being an opioid crisis, and I am guilty of this too, but if we, if we do that, um, we're in deep trouble, right? Because what happens is all of the dollars, all of the funding, all the solutions end up being opioid specific. And right. as a result of that, underneath the, the surface, there is a booming meth crisis. Alcohol is still the number one offender and killer in this country. We have a cocaine crisis that's happening again. I mean, the, uh, uh, after an opioid crisis, it's usually uh, followed by some sort of uh, um, uh, amphetamine crisis, right. you know, and, and that's what we're looking well, at Well, amphetamines now. have never gone away. I mean, that's yeah. another thing talking about the boots on the ground is yeah. I keep reading articles where they're like, meth is coming back. I'm from Southwest Missouri. Meth has never gone anywhere. You know, right. if you look at, you know, um, same thing in uh, Oregon, yeah. like Brent Canode introduced me to a term yeah. and I'll just hit this really quick. Um, syndemic, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm like, what does that word mean? And I looked it up and it, really defines where we're at because it says that we have a lot of societal things like uh, abject poverty, uh, institutional racism, and a lot right. of those things that have led to a huge increase in what they call deaths of despair, right. which would be suicide deaths and then yep. people dying Drug from yep. Yep. overdoses. And it, it locks in where all this funding is. I have people that are getting rejected from treatment because opioids isn't their drug of choice. Oh, I know. And even, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother, again, another 10 <laughs> part yes. pod podcast, but I mean, that's the insurance companies and parity enforcement. I mean, insurance companies, you know, people are mad at big pharmaceutical companies. I'm mad at big pharmaceutical companies. I've been, you know, taking them on head on now for, for over a year and a half. And, um, just equally as bad as pharmaceutical companies like Purdue and McKesson. And, right. Uh, you know, and their counterparts and, and, um, you know, Endo and Johnson and Johnson, uh, are these big insurance companies, you know, big insurance is, is just as bad, if not worse. Like people are dying, dying today who have been paying for healthcare policies because they're being denied care because it has to do with addiction. And there are laws on the books that are to prevent that. You know, parity was signed into law in 2008. It was signed into law. Parity is the law of the land in this country. There is no enforcement of it. No, I mean, we've actually, I've given testimony the last two years on parity bills that we're trying to get passed statewide. So, So if I were to end this episode right here, and that's the magic of a podcast and having somebody that can edit this stuff. Um, I would say, why don't you tell us what your dream of mobilize, like where do you envision mobilized recovery being a year from now, five years from now? I'll tell you, let's start in five years because okay. I think five years gives us a good runway. In five years, I'd like to see one million new people registered to vote, family members, people in recovery, allies in the recovery community. I'd like to see us organized in all 50 states and uh, in, in District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. And I think we're well on our way there right now. And I think that's actually something we'll have done in year one. I'd like to see 400 new people uh, running for political office, uh, whether it be city council, state legislature, mm-hmm. Congress, maybe even president of the United States who hold recovery as a, as a, as a, as a principle. Uh, that they are going to stand for, you know, that they're that they're a candidate and, a, and an elected official that will stand up for recovery. And I think that if we can get that done in the first five years, you know, we could be uh, one of the most uh, 
disruptive, game-changing, you know, social justice movements that this country's ever seen. The math is certainly in our favor. Right. Look, you know, whether whether your issue is guns, abortion, LGBT, you know, whatever it may be, uh, even even the AARP, our numbers outnumber all of them. Everybody. Not to say that we're better than them. I'm just saying that the math is there. Like the math right. is there. You've got 23 million and growing in recovery in the United States. You've got another 22 million who need help right now, who qualify for a right. substance use disorder. That's about 45 million people. And their who, families. Right. <laughs> who are directly impacted. But then if you take into account their family members, you're looking at one in, th in three households in the United States directly impacted whether on the positive side or someone who needs help side, right? Right. Then you take into account employers and 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 everyone else. We've got the math is there. We just have to organize. Absolutely. Like it's not, you know, and 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 to organize and to get it done, we've got to start talking outside this echo chamber. So being visible, vocal, and reminding people that they have a voice and their voice matters. And get involved. Yeah. Get involved. Get in touch with David. Get in touch with me. Like, honestly, like this is, you know, um, a, a lot of people, they don't know what the first step is, you know, and I think I don't know what others, what the first step is for right. others, but I know that there's some tools that I can provide that will help you figure out what that first step is and then be there to help support, guide and, uh, you know, hopefully develop and hone, hone your leadership skills. And then to leave this for, for all of your listeners, once you start to get those leadership skills, once you start to lead in your community, once you start to make an impact, start to draw some influence, it's important to keep giving that away. Right. Right. Like always give it away. Get get the next person, the next organization, next emerging advocate uh, work with them and encourage them to do that. It's just, you know, it, it, it pa pass it on, pay it forward. Right. Yeah. I forget the CEO, but I, he, I remember an interview with him and somebody said, uh, he was talking about all the training that he does for his employees. And they're like, aren't you afraid that if you give them all this training, they're just going to leave. And he said, no, I'm really afraid that if I don't train them at all, they're just going to stay. Right. You know? Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So building leaders. So if somebody wants to go up to that next level, um, and say, uh, get involved with mobilized recovery. What's the best way they can make that connection and sure. figure out who their person is in their Check regional out. state? So it, it, this podcast comes out next month. So by that time, everyone, we're launching Recovery Advocacy Project, which is where Mobilized Recovery is housed with. Okay. Uh, it's our partner with Voices Project, my nonprofit. Uh, go to recoveryvoices.com. That's recoveryvoices.com. Uh, you can identify your leads there. You can apply for leader leadership position. You can take advantage advantage of the in person and digital toolkits that we'll have. Uh, calls to action, uh, information about Mobilize Recovery 2020, and how to get involved. It will all be at recoveryvoices.com. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Ryan. I really appreciate you sitting down with me, and I'm excited that uh, I'm going to end this podcast and then instantly start up another one. Perfect. With you, where we run through ten questions in recovery. Great. Let's do it. Okay. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. Uh, there's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can uh, we're on Twitter, uh, B-L-I-R underscore N-P-O. 
Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week. Want to talk about a new movie? Check. Want to talk about an older movie similar or related to that new movie? Check. That's what you can expect from Quality Check Podcast. It's a new podcast on the Studio DNA Network hosted by yours truly, Drew Douglas and Daniel Posey. Every other Tuesday, we'll talk about a new movie and an old movie to see how the film's quality holds up. <laughs>